I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Annie Brewster. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, a practicing physician at Mass General Hospital in Boston, and a writer and storyteller. She's also a patient diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2001, and in response to the disconnection she experienced in healthcare, both as a patient and physician, and motivated by her belief in the power of stories, 
she started recording patient narratives in 2010. Integrating her personal experiences with the research supporting the health benefits of narrative, she founded the Health Story Collaborative in 2013. Her new book that we'll be talking about, co-authored with journalist Rachel Zimmerman, is The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss. Annie, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. So as a medical doctor and a patient, could you tell us about your experience of the doctor-patient relationship and then how you discovered stories and shared storytelling to be such a powerful tool for healing? Sure, it's a big question. Um, I'll start with talking about my experience with healthcare. Um, I came at it from two perspectives, as a patient and as a doctor. Initially, I was in training. This is back in the late 90s, early 2000s to become a doctor. And I had you know, always been, I'd say, a tiny bit ambivalent about medicine, um, was really drawn to a field in healthcare, but had taken lots of different paths before that and started medical school relatively late at age 27. Um, really was drawn to it for the promise of connection with with people, uh, the opportunity to really have that intimate space to hear patient stories. So that's what drew me to it. And I started out, I actually did two years in psychiatry because I was most drawn to the stories and then missed the more holistic taking care of the whole body and switched back to internal medicine. So I went through training and then entered primary care practice and really found that incredibly challenging as a provider because the system has many limitations. And I think many doctors would agree. Most people, especially in primary care, go into it for the connections and really the longitudinal relationships and being able to be with people. And it is challenging. Um, and I experienced that firsthand with sort of the 15, 20 minute appointments back to back to back, not enough time, way too many patients to actually know any of them. Um, and so started feeling that disconnection very early on in my medical journey of, you know, there's not really enough time to hear the stories, to take care of the people the way that I want to, to really be with them in those moments. I would hope that my patients didn't feel that, that I felt that rushed, but I was always under the pressure of the clock paid on productivity, the system really rewarded sort of volume um, and money over relationships. Um, and I think what made me saddest is that I felt then from the doctor point of view, an antagonistic tension sometimes between patient and provider because the doctors were, or providers in general, but I can only speak as a doctor, felt really time pressed. Um, and also the system sets you up to feel annoyed, you know, if your patient doesn't show up or comes 45 minutes late and it sets the whole schedule off. So there's this tension built into it. Um, again, because I was paid on productivity, my paycheck would take a hit if I had holes in my schedule. So the whole system like set up this antagonistic relationship and the patients are feeling like they're not getting seen, heard, paid attention to. Um, and that often results in sort of fear and anger because going to the doctor is often a very vulnerable thing. So I was noticing that and then sort of on a parallel track at the same time, 
I myself was diagnosed with a chronic illness with multiple sclerosis in 2001. So I started to experience some of the problems with healthcare from the patient point of view. And I think that really is what motivated me um, because being on that vulnerable side and feeling like my providers weren't really listening to me or seeing me as a full human being um, was challenging. And so I started to think then seeing you know, the problems in the system from both points of view that, you know, what was missing most was really the time and space for story exchange for, you know, meaningful connection between patient and provider. So a lot of my work has been motivated by that from sort of trying to repair that sacred space where healing can take place. And I say healing in terms of not just, you know, getting a diagnosis or trying to cure a disease, but really a therapeutic alliance between patient and provider. So how does stories and storytelling, um, shared storytelling, play into that? So I think what I began to realize, and, you know, this, I was diagnosed in 2001. I started my primary care practice in the early 2000s. So I started to sort of think about this. Um, I think mostly it comes from my experience as a patient and really getting a medical diagnosis and realizing that I had not fully understood as a doctor what that means from the patient point of view, that sometimes as providers, we think our job is to like solve the mystery and give someone a diagnosis and then our job is done, story over. As a patient, I realized this is like, the story is really just beginning. And it really threw me into an identity meltdown in a way because I'd never sort of thought of myself as someone who would have an illness or have a disease in front of me with no cure. Um, I'd been sort of, you know, someone who was into persevering through anything and, you know, naively thought that I could do so. So it was really this sort of identity meltdown. And I went into denial for a long time. And so I started to think about stories then because the process is really one of integration. You have a traumatic event or an illness, a new diagnosis, and you have to find a way, or so I realized, to integrate it into your life if you're going to move forward with health, if you're going to heal. And I don't mean heal as in get cured. I mean heal as in find a way to have a positive life despite the diagnosis. And so stories were integral to my own integration. First, um, in that when I was in the very private sort of denial phase of it, I found myself craving stories. I wanted to hear from others who had a chronic illness and how had they moved forward. And I was not ready to go to a support group because I didn't really feel... I hadn't really stepped into the identity of someone as with MS. And I was nervous to go to a support group because I was feeling too fragile. Like, what if someone is in a really negative space there? Can I handle it? But I wanted to hear the stories and not just like, you know, everything's wonderful. I was cured or silver linings only stories, but real stories of the hardship, but stories of hope. Like, how can you still have a positive life or even how can you use your experience of suffering to actually be a better human being. And I, I couldn't really find those stories. And so I started to think I'm going to create a library for my own patients of stories of very diagnoses of patients um, trying to integrate them so that they can access those online. So that was sort of the first thought, like maybe I can use my experience to create that. And then also at the same time, like I came I, as I said, I was in denial for a long time, but slowly I started to come out of my shell and tell my own story. Um, and I found that to be really empowering. And actually I had felt ashamed of my diagnosis and kind of broken and flawed and 
really it was about stepping into it fully and putting it out there that helped me to own it and to move forward. So I came, you know, to Health Story Collaborative from both um, the patient and the doctor point of view and sort of thinking, how can I use my experience um, to help other people? And stories was central to that because I wanted to give people the opportunity to share and also to create a library of stories for other people to hear and resonate with and help people have a sense of possibility and moving forward. So how did you find a way to share your story in a way that you found helpful for you? Well, uh, I was very lucky when I first started recording patient stories. That was in 2010. Health Story Collaborative was formally incorporated as a nonprofit in 2013, but I I started collecting them earlier, not my own story, other people's stories. And I had a connection with the public radio station in Boston, WBUR, and they would air my stories um, on their health blog and sometimes on the radio. And so that was a wonderful platform for that. And because I had that connection, I at one point, you know, wrote my own story. Um, It took me a while to actually get it out and put it down on paper. Um, But I submitted it and that ended up being published. And then there was an on-air radio segment um, of that, of me talking about my story. And so all these people in my life that I hadn't told heard that on the radio. And so it was like this coming out all at once kind of, which was actually really freeing and helped me really to move forward. And in writing about my own story, I, I started to recognize how healing it was to go through that process and also working with the patients that I worked with to share their stories for the library. You know, even though I initially at the the end goal was to create sort of a listening library, what I realized in doing the work is that actually the process that people engaged with in, you know, writing their story, having it edited, putting it out there, having it be witnessed, that that process was incredibly therapeutic for them. And so I initially sort of experienced this intuitively and really saw the benefits. But then I was very lucky early on to connect with a psychologist who, his name is Jonathan Adler, and he is the chief academic officer of Health Story Collaborative now and was really involved since the beginning. And he taught me a lot and continues to teach me about the science of storytelling and how it's good for us. And so I've learned a lot since then. So it started out sort of intuitively, experientially, and then he's really helped ground me in that science. Um, And there is a very robust body of social science literature on the health benefits of storytelling. And so we ground a lot of our work in that. So one thing I want to cover before we go further into the storytelling is the kind of crisis that a patient goes through when when they go to the doctor and they get a diagnosis and the way the diagnosis is delivered and then the personal experience or what's going on inside of the patient, the the kind of things that arise, the fear and and the kind of stories that emerge in a kind of knee-jerk response to this new diagnosis. And also because as you described, when you only have 15 minutes with a doctor, it can feel very impersonal. And that's a very stark contrast to the inner, very personal experience that's unfolding. No doubt. Yeah, um, I 
I have a lot of thoughts on that. I do think everyone's different. So how people respond to a diagnosis initially is varied. Uh, but my experience, both as a patient as and as a doctor, has really shown me that like people can't take it in all at once, right? So we don't, or I didn't anyway, before I was a patient, really understand that. Like you think, oh, I just told them they have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it is done. Actually, you know, it takes people a long time to make sense of that or whether it's a cancer diagnosis. I mean, you can hear it, but you're not necessarily fully understanding it or taking it in or integrating it right away. Um, there's a quote um, by Paul Kalanithi who wrote, when breath becomes air, that always resonates me. And it's not, I, I'm going to probably mangle it, but it's something like a terrine of tragedy needs to be doled out one spoonful at a time. And that really resonates with me. Like we can't all at once dump it. Like this is definite. Here it is. We give people the facts, but like when I was given my diagnosis, I felt like it was thrown at me like almost too forcefully. Like I only had one lesion on my spinal cord at the time. I wasn't sure it was multiple sclerosis. There was only one lesion. That's not multiple. It could have been other things. The doctor was pretty darn sure that it was MS and it turns out he was right. But he came on really strong and was like, you should go on the medicine immediately. And those are not entirely benign medicines. They, you know, change your immune system. I couldn't take it in, you know, so it would have helped me to be like, this is a possibility. Let's see how it plays out. Let's think about what else it might be and give me a little time to process. Maybe that's just me, but I really think people can't absorb it all at once. So you make a follow-up or you have more time to think about it, whatever. So that's one thing. I think that you have to let it unfold at a more relaxed pace. And I think um, how people then move forward. I mean, I've seen it both ways. I went into denial and was like, I can't deal with this. And I like for five years, just like, you know, internally, I was going through the process of integration under the radar, not even fully aware of it at the time. It wasn't like I didn't think about it. I did. But I really just didn't bring it into my life. And I didn't tell many people except my family and closest friends. Other people I've seen, like the total extreme opposite of that would be you become like completely one with your diagnosis. It becomes your identity. Like I am a sick person and that can take up a lot of space. And I was terrified of that. Um, I didn't want it to be all of me and I didn't want to get stuck in that. And I have as a doctor seen people who can get stuck in that space of, you know, my life revolves around my illness management. And sometimes that's necessary, but I think we also need to keep other parts of ourselves alive. So I think, you know, people swing between those extremes and there's people in the middle. So everyone does it differently. Um, but I do think it can be terrifying to just get a diagnosis and it, it's, it's a process. It's a process of integration. And if nothing else, that's what I've learned. And it's changed the way I doctor in that I'm much more patient with my patients in terms of like letting them be where they are with like, I might recommend a particular treatment and it's based on what I know about medicine and it might be grounded in the science and it's what I would suggest. But I also know that they have to be ready and that ultimately it's up to them and that not everyone's ready right away. So I'm more tolerant of that having lived on the other side. So you wanted to bring this storytelling aspect into the medical profession directly so that 
doctors or perhaps somebody within the medical system could help patients to deal with um, the fallout of a diagnosis and to help help them with the story because we all create, we're constantly creating stories. Yes. Based on our experience in the world from, you know, day to day, moment by moment. And you wanted to bring this understanding of storytelling and, and the healing power of storytelling into the medical profession so that patients could actually get some support in the storytelling process and how to make it more of a positive and potentially healing experience rather than just being a story of catastrophe, which could actually end up undermining their immune system and putting them into like a permanent state of sympathetic response where where they're not really um, well able to cope physiologically and immunologically to their condition. So what what happened when you tried to to do that and what are the obstacles that exist in in the medical world to bringing storytelling formally into the profession? Yeah, good question. Well, um, initially, I mean, I recognize that as much as I wanted to bring it into the exam room during the medical appointments, that that was just not going to be possible because of the time constraints. Um, so I immediately knew I have to create a space outside of the exam room to make this happen. That's not to say that there aren't things we can do in those appointments to make people feel more seen and heard as a provider, to really be more present with people. And that is possible. But really engage in the storytelling process. I recognized early that I need to create a space outside of the exam room for this to happen. And I recognize that, well, I work in a big hospital in Boston. There's, let's just say, a lot of red tape, a lot of risk management, fear. Um, it's hard to get anything new launched has been my experience. Um, there's a lot of fear of you know, litigation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I found it very challenging to try and get something like this up and running initially within the hospital because it's very much based on rules and regulations, sometimes at the expense of really thinking about what would be good for patients and for the providers, really, because both patients and providers need more time for this kind of storytelling and connection. So I stepped outside of my clinical job to get Health Story Collaborative off the ground, you know, recognizing that I had to start outside, launch something, and then find my way back in. And so, you know, that's been a journey over the years, trying to integrate it into the healthcare system. And I'd say I've had sort of mixed support from the healthcare system, um, you know, bringing it in. I've done a lot of programs at the hospital, but, um, you know, it's been challenging. It's not like they're like, here, let's fund this, and this is great. And one of the projects that I tried to get off the ground, and it does exist, but in sort of a diminished form, is like a patient listening kiosk where I have a kiosk that's stocked with lots of stories. Um, and initially, I'd had a much bigger vision of wanting to have, like, a space in the hospital that was like either in waiting rooms or in the front entrance of the hospital that was something where people could go in and record stories, but could also access stories and sort of have a, a living conversation within the hospital of stories, because it can be such an isolating environment. And there are so many people walking around who are feeling vulnerable and going through similar things, but 
you know, we often sit in waiting rooms and don't talk to each other because it's awkward. And so I really had had wanted to do that. It ended up as just a listening kiosk because the hospital was nervous about letting people record, you know, alone. It was going to be through prompts on, on a computer. Um, anyway, it exists, but it wasn't really fully promoted or supported. So I think the hospital is resistant to that. You know, I don't know if other hospitals around the country are more innovative and flexible in new programming, but I think in general in healthcare, there is this risk management framework that that limits innovation sometimes. So a lot of our programs have been outside of the hospital, um, doing them in communities, and then also some in the hospital. But, uh, you know, the medical system isn't always flexible and innovative, but we're trying, trying, trying. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make it clear that not just patients, but doctors also really need this kind of healing as well. Absolutely. Yep. In this healthcare uh, process. So talk about agency and learning to quote unquote, drive our own stories and how most of us have been brought up and led to believe that circumstances dictate the terms of our lives and how that or those kind of stories drive our lives by default. Sure. Um, before I answer that, I will just, I just want to agree with you that providers really need this space for stories too. And some of our programming is actually having patients and providers side by side sharing their stories to humanize both and to strengthen uh, the patient provider connection. Yes. So agency and stories. And so this is a lot what I've learned from Jonathan Adler, my research colleague, chief academic officer of Health Story Collaborative. Uh, his field of research is narrative psychology. And that's really based on this concept called narrative identity, which is really the belief that our identity is shaped by the stories we tell about ourselves in this sort of continually evolving process. And, you know, we don't tell stories about every little thing that happens to us in our lives, but it tends to be the sort of the high point, low point, turning point, big moments that we tell stories about. And that sort of shapes the scaffolding of our identity. And it's continually in flux as we make sense of things differently. But I think the empowering piece for me is that we have some agency there. We play an active role in shaping those stories. So we can't control the events of our lives always, right? Things happen to us, like maybe getting an illness that we can't control, but we can always control how we make sense, how we find meaning in what happens to us reflected in the stories we tell. So as John Adler would say, you know, we're both the narrators and the main characters in our story. And for me, that's that's where the the power lies, that, that we play an active role, actually. We have some agency in how we shape those stories in what we choose to focus on um, and how we remember them. And we always will have that choice of how we make meaning. No one can take that away from us. And so I found tremendous power in that. And yeah, I'd say that's where the agency lies. And so there is, you know, John Adler's work focuses a lot on sort of what makes for a health promoting story. And it turns out it's not so much sort of the content in terms of what is happening, the events, it's more the themes that show up in the story that are linked to mental health. Um, 
And so there are themes, which I can tell you about if you want, that are linked to positive mental health. And, and one of those is agency. So the more we see agency or people feeling like they have the ability to play an active role in the stories of their lives, that's linked to positive mental health. So we're always pulling for those, trying to help people see the agency that they already have and to develop further agency as they tell their stories. And we're really grounded in that research. Um, but again, it's not so much the events that dictate our, our health. It's how we make sense. It's the meaning we make. It's those themes that show up in the story. So it's not the event or circumstance it's itself, but how we relate to it or respond to it. Exactly. Uh-huh. So you say that our world is constructed out of stories. Could you talk about that in relation to the cultural stories or master narratives that we live within, sort of like the way you know fish swim in water? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point because, you know, what I'm saying, I really do believe in like self-determination and agency and that we have a choice to make about how we make meaning. But we cannot overlook the fact that um, we live in a broader context of these dominant cultural narratives in the research they're called master narratives that can be constraining. That doesn't mean they can't be changed, but they are, it's not equally easy for everybody to take charge of their stories because of these master narratives, these cultural assumptions um, that we live in. You know, one example would be sort of um, looking at how we think, how we define a family historically. I think we have come a long way and made a lot of progress, but historically, man, woman, children, you know, it doesn't make um, room other family structures. So I think, you know, we have come a long way in terms of LGBTQ rights, and we have changed that narrative slowly, and there's still work to be done. Um, but that takes time. And it's like one individual story, we can all take part in changing those master narratives, if we tell our stories slightly differently, and then sort of collectively, slowly, those master narratives change, but they can be constraining and people have to, if they don't fit with that master narrative, um, have to either try to assimilate with it and uh, not tell their honest story or, you know, push against it. And so that's this constant process of negotiating with these broader cultural narratives, these dominant narratives, and they are all around us. Um, but I think that's how social change can happen is if individually we start to tell different stories and then that takes on a collective power and over time we can change these dominant narratives. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about how our stories and memories are continually changing as we're discovering in the field of neuroscience and how we can actually consciously use that to our advantage to help grow and evolve our own stories just as we grow and evolve? Yeah, um, I think it's a fascinating field um, and we're gonna be learning over time much more about the neurobiology side of this. But I mean, just speaking about um, memory and how it works, we know that it's pretty imperfect. We don't remember things always exactly at all. And, you know, there is some evolutionary benefit to that, right? If we think of memory as um, trying to sort of help us 
predict the future. Um, if we're, you know, we're not trying to just replicate the past, we're trying to um, predict and adapt to the future. So sort of that malleability of memory can be helpful to us because it gives us more potential narratives for the future. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not an exact phenomenon. Um, again, I, I always go back to John Adler because he's taught me so much, but he would say like, um, our stories are not capital T truth. They're like little T truth. So they're not necessarily grounded in exactly what happened, but they are grounded in that to some degree, but there's some malleability, which actually helps us have more flexibility in how we make sense of ourselves moving forward, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, our memories are are actually quite flawed. According to the research, um, we don't always remember things accurately, um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing that can help us adapt. Mm -hmm. So let's get into how coming together to both tell and listen to our stories is healing not only for, for both parties, but also how that ripples out to everybody around us. Yeah, the way I like to think about stories as, you know, storytelling as a relational act, right? That there's always ripples, um, that it's like an ongoing intricate dance. So you tell me your story and how I react to it in that moment going to change your story going forward. Um, your story is going to change my story going forward and so on and so on and so on. And it's an ongoing dance um, because our stories are always changing slightly in response to this give and take of story exchange. So, you know, we do often live storytelling events where we have an audience, we have a storyteller, and we always say like, there's some co-creation of the story going on in that room at the time because the audience and how they receive and witness the story of that storyteller is going to change that storyteller's story going forward and vice versa. Um, and then people carry that outside of the room and bring that into their other relationships. Uh, and so it's this ongoing process of relational storytelling. I also think, you know, the stories that are honest and authentic and vulnerable shared can really open everybody up and can deepen our empathy and compassion for others because we all feel less guarded and more open when we hear such stories. And I think it can ripple out um, that way as well and creating more open exchange and willingness to be vulnerable. And I don't think there are very many spaces in our culture where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable in that way. So I think that's one of the big benefits of creating these storytelling spaces where um, people are talking about illness, trauma, and loss in a very authentic and honest way. And I think it gives everyone more permission to be human. I think it's utterly fascinating how the audience, you know, a live audience actually influences or affects the stories being presented on stage, including the way um, the telling of the story and the hearing of the story unfolds for the people on stage yeah. modeling or doing doing the storytelling process. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of power in that for sure. Could you talk more about it? Is there is there any science 
that's unfolding around that to support that notion? Because I think some people may may think that that is a, a bit on the woo woo side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think the science that speaks directly to that relational aspect of storytelling. Um, there's definitely science that supports, um, you know, how we engage with our story and how we tell them and shape them is good for our health. Um, there's science on sort of the the benefits of listening to stories. So we know that like somebody's listening to someone tell a story about living with diabetes, for instance, and they have diabetes, it's going to change their emotional engagement with their illness, um, their, their self-care, um, and also maybe their outcomes in terms of health. Like there's definitely a study on better blood pressure control when people who had high blood pressure listen to stories from other people who have high blood pressure, they do better. Um, so there's that. There's a lot of research on sort of the benefits of support groups, so story exchange and community and how people actually have better mental health and physical health. And then there are just more interesting neurobiology studies that don't necessarily speak directly to the health benefits of storytelling, but but that show that sort of um, when we are listening to stories, there's one neuropsychologist, neurobiologist, Yuri Hassan, who's at Princeton University, and he's done some really interesting studies where he uses electrodes to measure brain waves or functional MRI to look at which areas of the brain light up and has, has, has found that like when people are um, listening to stories together, that their brains, he calls it coupling, I think, sort of sync up in those areas. And it's not just in sort of the, like the area of the audio cortex. So it's not just about hearing the same words. It's actually the higher levels of the brain that are, have to do with meaning making um, and interpretation that light up together. And he's done like really interesting variations of that um, to show that, like where people heard the same stories, um, one told in Russian, one told in English, Russian speakers heard the Russian, obviously English speakers heard the English, and they didn't light up in the same areas of sort of the audio cortex because words were different, but they lit up in the same meaning making or higher level areas of brain. So there's something that thinks up when people are in the room hearing the stories, and that's you know, both for people who are listening, people who are telling. Um, and so there's that connection. Um, there also have been some studies, like there was just one that came out recently looking at children in the intensive care unit, where some were read stories and others were just played a riddle game. So there was engagement with someone for the same amount of time, either the reader or the riddle person. But those who heard stories actually had higher levels of certain hormones oxytocin, which is the hormone linked to connection um, and empathy, higher levels, levels of that and lower le levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone in the story group. So there was something about hearing the stories that actually made them feel better. And, you know, they also um, had less pain when they were asked about their pain levels and used more positive words to describe their experiences in the hospital. So there's something real that goes on with this story exchange. And it's sort of in neurobiologic terms, still an evolving field, but it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, another study is looking at patients and providers in psychotherapy. Um, and they look at like heart rate and skin conductance as a measure of emotional reactivity. And they found that like when the provider and the patient were more synced up 
in terms of emotional reactivity. So their heart rate levels were the same, more, more concordant, and their skin conductance measure was the same. The patient was much more likely to perceive of that provider as empathic. So there's something in real time that's going on when people sync up in those ways, um, and it has positive effects on health. Mm, I love that. And I was really wanting to get more into shared storytelling and, you know, sharing stories across, you know, like the divide of, let's say, doctor-patient or or any kind of divide where there is a need for communication and and empathy. Could you talk about the power of stories to help us bridge those kind of divides? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really valuable. Um, and, you know, I think of like restorative justice as a movement, which is, you know, people who have committed a crime um, and maybe the person that was harmed by that crime coming together and sharing stories. And that can be so healing and therapeutic and positive. Um, we have a model at Health Story Collaborative where we have patients and providers coming together to share stories, as I mentioned. Um, we you know, choose patients and providers who are already in a therapeutic alliance as patient and doctor or patient. Mostly we've done doctors. We've also done nurses and patients. Um, and we have a different narrative guide for both of them. So we have, you know, extensive guides that guide people in this process of writing their stories. And then we go through multiple drafts of editing with them to sort of push for these therapeutic themes. But again, remembering that they have to be authentic, real stories. It does not mean shying away from what's hard. In fact, it's essential to dig into what's hard. Um, and then we have events where we come together and we have patient and provider share their stories, part of which is about their relationship together, but they've each written about it from their different points of view. And they've never heard each other's stories like this before. And then they come together and share and it's really powerful because it shows really the human side of both. And the thing I love about that model is that it then sort of changes that relationship going forward and it inserts something new into that relationship that they will carry forward and strengthen that. And, you know, I, as I said really early um, in our talk today, I felt sad when I was a primary care doctor that there was this antagonism. And I would often say to my patients, like, I'm sorry, like this system is like not working for either of us and we're we're on the same team and you know let's try to remember that because it sort of pits us against each other when no one's getting what they want the doctors are feeling really burned out and like many went into it for sort of the meaning and the connection and that's stripped away a lot and it's hard to keep it alive if you're very time constrained um you know there's this moral injury is what it's been referred to in the literature for providers um, and patients, legitimately so, aren't getting what they need. So it's really therapeutic to have this space where they can hear each other's perspectives. Um, and we do it in a very safe, contained way where we're, you know, it's always a little bit, well, it's taboo in medicine, let's just say this, for providers to share with anything personal with their patients. And I think that goes too far. I have become less boundaried as a doctor since I've been a patient. Um, though I still really believe in the importance of boundaries, and I think obviously we never want to burden our patients with our issues, but but I think to be human a little bit is okay. And I love it when my providers share a little bit about themselves with me. It makes me feel more connected. Um, but it's interesting because when we do these events, 
most people find it really incredibly meaningful, but there's always people who are very traditional in medicine who find that playing with those boundaries a little uncomfortable. And it is, but we do it in a contained way. We're not going to let the doctor say something that's going to burden the patient. Um, we're editing these many times beforehand, and we know what we're getting into when we walk into that space, even though they haven't heard each other's stories. We have heard them. Um, but it is still playing with boundaries. But I think that's why it's meaningful. And I think medicine can be overly boundaried sometimes. Mm -hmm. You say that healing is possible even if a physical cure isn't. Yes, I believe that. Could you talk more about that? Sure. I mean, I, I know that just from personal experience, there is no cure for MS yet. Um, so, okay, I can't beat the disease. And I think sometimes sort of the metaphors of medicine are very much about war and conquer and beat and especially with cancer, for instance, and that that's not always um, the most productive thing for patients. Um, and there actually has been a study on sort of that and how it's not always the most beneficial um, in cancer patients. But anyway, I do think that we can get trapped in that mindset of conquer cure is the only success as providers in the medical system. And as a patient, I have recognized that that's not the case, that there is no cure for my disease, but there is certainly healing. And um, for me, that's about how can I uh, move forward um, with the best um, life possible, given the constraints that I have, and how even more, like, how can I use my experience of suffering to help other people? And that's helped that's help me find agency. Um, and, you know, many of the themes we pull for, like connection with others, and it's really given me purpose and unity. And so I think there's a way that we can heal, even in the face of an incurable illness. And I will say like, even in a terminal illness, when somebody is dying, I still think there's healing that can take place, right? There's room for taking conversations to a new level. Maybe there's a new urgency to saying things that haven't been said. Um, there can be healing in those moments. Um, and so that's it. I think healing and caring are very different um, and they can go hand in hand or not. Mm -hmm. And following up, on storytelling in the context of uh, death and dying. Um, I'm reminded of the story of Chris and Betsy. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Yeah, well, that's a wonderful story because Chris has, has passed away two years ago, I believe. Betsy is on my board now for Health Story Collaborative. We're still very connected. For me, that's been such a great privilege of meeting so many wonderful people along the way and keeping a lot of the connections going. But we first met because when Chris was still alive, Betsy had reached out to me and they'd heard about Health Story Collaborative and Chris had wanted to share his story. He had a glioblastoma, one of the most deadly types of brain tumors. At that point, he was starting to lose some of his uh, ability to recall and speak clearly, but he still could do quite a good job. Um, and they wanted to record him then and make sure that they had it. They had two young kids and they wanted to have that recording. So we met and we did an interview together where Chris and Betsy both shared their points of view and their journey. And they, you know, at Chris's funeral actually played part of that clip and kids have it now. And that's been really meaningful. And since then, Betsy has shared her story 
at least three other times, I think, with Health Story Collaborative at events, which just to me points to the continually evolving nature of our stories and that our stories are changing. And so her story, each time she tells it, is slightly different and she's in a different place. Um, and that evolution of, you know, now her story is what is it like to be living as a single mom with two kids um, trying to make sense of the loss of Chris. Um, so it's been wonderful to stay connected to her and watch her story evolve. And she is someone who, as a board member, brings tremendous value because she's lived it firsthand. And could you talk more about how both of their stories and the unfolding of, of their telling of their stories in relation to each other and what was occurring, how that moves forward in time as a as a kind of living unfolding story. I mean, you you alluded to that, but what kind of benefits? I mean, what what lives on? Yeah, I mean, I'd say even when Chris was still alive, that unfolding story um, changed their relationship just in that it gave them the space and time to talk about it, to think about things they hadn't thought about or give voice to things they hadn't expressed to one another. Um, and I think carrying it forward, I think it's, um, you know, for Chris, because he's gone, it's certainly a legacy piece and it lives on for his children. And um, they were young and um, certainly remember him, but I think it allows them to have access to that part of him. And he did talk about his relationship with them in his interview, in his story. Um, and so that's really meaningful and that lives on. Um, and then, you know, how Betsy incorporates it and tells her story that lives on. And I'm sure the kids' stories are being changed by it as well. So it's ongoing and unfolding. Mm -hmm. You say that no story exists in a vacuum, that every story is part of a web of stories and how all stories are co-created both in the telling and the listening. I'm really fascinated by that notion of how every story is part of a web of stories. Yeah, no, I think that is sort of what I was talking about earlier with this like ongoing intricate dance of how we hear each other's stories and then our stories shift and it goes on from there. Um, and then of course, we're all living in the web of these broader cultural stories and we all live in many different cultures simultaneously because these master narratives can be very big cultural stories or even smaller cultural stories of you know our place of work for instance has a little its own little culture you know so so there are lots of different um stories that we live amongst and within uh, and are constantly sort of negotiating with those stories and with one another Mm -hmm. Yeah, nested levels of stories. Yeah, yeah. So how do you work with people to help them craft and refine their own stories in a way that is particularly meaningful for them and, and really can help them um, benefit from this process? Yeah, I mean, so our one of our main programs is these live storytelling events, healing story sessions, which we've done virtually since the pandemic, but uh, hopefully we'll get back to in-person at some point. Um, but yeah, we it, it's pretty high intensity work. Um, it is using our narrative guide that's grounded in the research to help people craft their narratives. 
and then we work pretty intensively with them to, you know, quote unquote, edit them, you know, but of course, recognizing that it's such a privilege to hold someone else's story and it's their story. So it's a very sort of delicate endeavor in an ethical context um, of how we are helping people do that. But you know, it's it's quite meaningful. Anyway, so we're probing, we have them write to the narrative guide, which, and this is all outlined in the book, having them, you know, thinking about illness narratives or narratives of trauma and loss as turning point stories, um, meaning that there is, you know, an event that happens and then we, um, there's the before and there's the event and there's the after, but we also recognize that not everything fits that model and there are ways to work around that. But we sort of ask people to dig into those before moments, those after moments, and then that turning point moment in the middle. Um, and we're pulling for these themes. Often when we're working with people, you know, we don't name the themes. And the themes, I'll just say that we mostly work with our agency, as I mentioned, linked to positive mental health. Redemption is another one that's, um, you know, when elements of a story go from bad to good, that's also good for our positive health. The flip side of that, contamination, things go bad, start good and go bad. That's bad for our mental health. Um, and communion. So the more people sort of write about connection and community or look for that in their life, the, that's linked to positive mental health. Um, and then just the process of coherence of writing a narrative and um, putting it together in a way that's coherent, which makes sense, which is believable, which brings someone into that story with specific details. That's also good for our mental health. So we're always sort of pulling for those, not, not necessarily naming those themes, but sort of keeping those in mind as we edit. But in the book, we do outline all of that. The other one that I want to say that's a theme that I find is most one of the most important is called accommodative processing. And that's more about meaning making, right? So I don't want people to think like they have to find like only a redemptive story. Actually, Accommodative processing is about digging into the hard stuff to find the meaning, and that's very important for our well-being and our mental health. So we ha actually have to dig into that. Um, so when we have something happen to us, we can either assimilate it. It's called assimilative processing, like just fold it into our existing story, or we are forced to go through this accommodative processing, which means we actually have to change our stories in order to fit this new event in and make sense of it. And that's hard, that's challenging. That happens with illness, but it's also psychologically productive and it's been linked to positive mental health. So as we help people edit, we're always pulling for those themes, but we're also you know, wanting it to be a true authentic story that ultimately is empowering to them and a good story. But it turns out like that element of coherence, part of that is like having really specific details so that it comes alive. So you can, the senses, what does it smell like, taste like, feel like, bring that story alive. That's coherence. That's good for the mental health of the writer, but it's also what makes for a good story. So um, they're engaging to listen to as well. My guest is Annie Brewster. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Her new book, co-authored with journalist Rachel Zimmerman, is The Healing Power of Storytelling using personal narrative to navigate illness, trauma, and loss. Could you talk about the cost of not you know, engaging with our stories and doing the inquiry into um, our kind of default stories? I'm thinking of the David and Tracy story sharing session and the limitations 
of a relationship if we don't find a way to share our stories together and how that actually ripples out and reflects upon our our nation and, and the entire world. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great point. Well, David is the provider and Tracy is a patient who lives with diabetes and they came together a number of years ago now and shared at one of our events as patients and provider. But it was really wonderful because they had both struggled a bit as patient and provider and had not really fully considered the other's point of view or what it was like for the other in the relationship. You know, Tracy had a very busy life. And so Tracy initially, I think David, the doctor would say, had some challenges managing her diabetes. And he would have perceived of it as, oh, she wasn't always doing what I said. She wasn't following the rules. I mean, he's an incredibly thoughtful, wonderful doctor. So he was also treating her like a human being throughout. But I think that he had not fully understood the context of her life and what was challenging and why she wasn't, quote unquote, following his recommendations or following the rules. And it really deepened his understanding of her to hear her very personal journey and what it had been like. And I think for her, she, you know, had maybe not fully understood how much he cared and how much it actually personally impacted him to see her when she struggled and wasn't doing well. And that, you know, he really was more emotionally engaged than she would have thought. And I think that really helped her understand him. And he also talked about himself and his past and why he became a doctor in this really moving and profound way about his childhood and growing up. And I think that really helped her see him as a human being. And so I think hearing each other really helped them deepen their understanding of what it was like to be on the underside and really, you know, change their relationship going forward. It wasn't perfect, but they certainly took it to a deeper level. And, you know, that sharing was done in the context of a diabetes support group. So many of the other patients who were in the audience had David as a provider as well. So I think it was really meaningful for them all. And they said that in the feedback that it really felt like such a gift to hear him speak as a human And I think it made them trust him more. So I think there's something very real that can happen when you have that sharing space. Yeah, it it seems like there's a very powerful thing that that arises out of these kind of story sharing sessions, particularly across these kind of divides. Even when there's, you know, the best intentions involved, how easy it is to misunderstand or misinterpret the other, and how the world is is really suffering from a, a kind of epidemic of othering and lack of understanding or misunderstanding, kind of like a pandemic of misunderstanding. And I was deeply moved by the story sharing sessions that you shared in the book, because it really helped me to see how, how much wonderful healing possibility really exists for all of us all the time if we can find a way to share our stories with others. Well, thank you for saying that. I I fully agree. There is an epidemic of misunderstanding. And I think if we can all, there's so much fear, right, that's driving people because people feel othered or are afraid of the other or whatever it is. And 
and we're afraid and there's not enough space where we can be vulnerable together and actually realize that there are more similarities than there are differences often and there's points of connection that we miss. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about how some people use art instead of storytelling or writing to work on and transform their own stories? Sure. I mean, I think there are many different ways to tell a story. I think, uh, you know, probably there's some narrative element to all of it, even when we're putting it out in art, that we are have it in our minds as a narrative. But not all artists would agree with that. Some say they just create and it's the story comes out. But I do think, um, you know, the way people express themselves and share their stories is very different. And, you know, one example in the book is Elizabeth Jameson, who's, who's someone I deeply respect, who um, has MS, has very uh, aggressive, progressive MS, and is now quadriplegic. But her journey, of she came to art late in life, had not been an artist. But when she was first diagnosed, she, well, she was a lawyer at the time, she was a public activist. And she lost her voice when she first got her first bout of MS, and she actually couldn't do that work anymore. So she kind of recreated herself and started doing art and she she did it in a way where she would transform like she took her brain scans which were these scary black and white images of her brain being damaged by ms and she creates the most incredible art pieces around them so it was really transformative and it was how she sort of took charge of her own story that way and wanted to um, make these scary ugly things beautiful but also um in a bigger sort of um, public activist way, sort of counter the negative assumptions about people with disability and to take these sort of quote unquote scary things and make them beautiful and show the, the beautiful complexity of them. So she inspires me and she really has used art to, to communicate. Unfortunately, now she can't use her hands because her disease has progressed so much, but she continues to write, um, you know, having someone with help her with the typing and she's a brilliant writer. So she's just, use different modalities to tell her story. Um, one project we have is the Opioid Project where I work with a visual artist and we um, have workshops where she collages with the participants and I collect audio stories. And we started doing it with people who'd lost a loved one to overdose with the goal of sort of bringing alive the people who had died and contextualizing them and making them human and not just addicts and bringing them to light and using art and audio stories to do that, and then trying to bring those into the public and have art shows where people could look at the art, listen to the clips, and really ultimately work to decrease stigma and educate the public. And we've taken that further where we work with people who are in recovery, and we've worked with people as first responders all around the opioid epidemic. But that's been really powerful to sort of see how people use um, different modalities to tell their stories through spoken word or through writing and to try and have these multimedia exhibitions where we show all of those different entry points into the story. Where sometimes people relate to a story better when it's in art. Um, so it's not just for the teller, it's for the listener. There are different ways to enter those stories. So ultimately, why do stories have such profound life-changing effects upon us and help us deal with, with some of the problems of division and misunderstanding when when it seems like most other things don't? Well, I mean, it sort of goes back to this, for me, this concept of narrative identity that sort of our stories give shape to who we are um, and that 
we can change that um, and we have we play an active role in how we shape ourselves and and that doesn't mean like again it doesn't mean only looking for the good but it means sort of I'm looking for the hope, looking for the possibility, and that can be in our own stories, but it's also in engaging with other people in community and um, story exchange and, you know, looking for hope and possibility and moving forward and sort of, again, like, I'm not trying to be like Miss Silver Lining and obviously it stinks to go through challenging experiences like illness or trauma. Nobody would want that, but I sort of see it at least for me, I came to like, okay, what's the alternative? I'm going to sit here and feel sorry for myself, or I'm going to try and find ways that I can take this experience and help me use it to help others or to deepen my relationships or to become a better person, to become a better doctor, to become a better mother, spouse, whatever, to um, deepen my relationships, to become more empathic, um, to understand others. And I think it has because, you know, when we can open up to our own vulnerability, we're going to be less judgmental of others and feel more at ease. So it sounds like stories open up certain avenues that may not be able to be accessed any other way, like vulnerability and and empathy and things like that. Because you say that stories communicate through the language of the heart, and it seems as though it's through the heart that we can really access those things and and come to terms with those kind of challenges. Right, absolutely. And when we think about like, I mean, there is a lot of research on sort of social change and stories or just even sort of the persuasiveness of stories versus facts. And, you know, whether it's in business or whether it's in communicating across, um, you know, charged topics where there's a lot of disagreement, um, that people are more easily convinced when there's a story element rather than, you know, just facts. And so we often think it's all about let's argue facts. Well, actually, people respond and are able to see more eye to eye and have more tolerance when there's a personal story element involved. Mm -hmm. And you say taking charge of our stories is both simple and incredibly complicated. And you you quote the wonderful Viktor Frankl, who seems to have wonderful quotes for almost everything. The quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Yep. 100%. He's brilliant, Viktor Frankl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk more about how this storytelling thing is both the power of stories and storytelling is both simple and so complicated well it's simple in that it is our human nature i think to want to tell stories it's how our brains are constructed it's how we make sense of ourselves others and our world uh so it's simple in that way it's what we do as human beings uh, it's complex in that it's not easy, right, to, you know, the kind of storytelling that we are advocating is, is hard work. Um, I, I think there are great benefits, but it's not, it's not easy. You know, it requires you digging into hard stuff and feeling things deeply and being really honest and, and it's, it's not easy. So, but it's super worthwhile, but you have to be up for it. 
So in our final moments, could you give our listeners a few example prompts to perhaps begin their own storytelling process? Uh, sure. And also to give a, a sense of the unfolding complexity of this process as well. Yeah, again, they're all outlined in the book, but you know, our narrative guide is really much, as I said, sort of these turning point story moments and digging into the before, but we ask very specific questions because that specificity is really important for coherence. So like what happened in that moment? Who were you with? What were you doing? What did you see? What did you smell? Um, what did you feel? And why do you think this is important to you? And sort of so encouraging them to psychologically reflect on why. So digging into it there, um, same for the different, um, the, you know, the actual moment of the event or the diagnosis, if there was such a moment, recognizing that some people are born with an illness and there's no such turning point moment. Um, and then, you know, where are you now? And But also give us a specific story or a moment that you can describe in each of those segments. So the more specificity, the better, so that we can imagine being there with you. Uh, and then, you know, when we're editing and looking for agency, let's say, we might ask, like, you know, what what could you control in that moment? Or, or what do you think you could say to somebody who's living with something like this now or going through this journey now? What, what might you say to them that would help them understand? Um, or if we're probing for, like, communion as a theme, like, who's there for you? Or, you know, tell us about a friend who, you know, helped you in this journey and how and elaborate on that. Or, you know, those are, it's never quite that clear cut, but those are the kind of things we're asking people to dig into. And it's all really outlined clearly in the book. So how can people find out more about these storytelling projects or get involved in, in any of this? Well, you could read the book um, and then you could also go to our website. Um, it's www.healthstorycollaborative.org and you can always contact us through the site if you have interest in participating in some way. Um, we do talks quite a bit. Um, we've done trainings where we've done train the trainer models to help people who are interested in bringing this kind of work to their own workplace or environment. Um, and then of course we have the storytelling events or the opioid project workshops, and we have a lot of online content as well. My guest has been Annie Brewster. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a practicing physician at Mass General Hospital in Boston. She's a writer and storyteller. She's also a patient diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2001. She founded the Health Story Collaborative in 2013, and her new book that we've been talking about, which is co-authored with journalist Rachel Zimmerman, is The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss. Annie, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute delight to talk with you. Well, thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciated it, and I uh, really enjoyed our conversation.
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.